Welcome to the Law with DK Williams, giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to the Law. I'm DK Williams, and this is episode 69. We are going to discuss a brand new case that just came out this week, five days ago, on February 7th, 2020. The case is Blumenthal versus Donald J. Trump in his official capacity as President of the United States of America. This is the case where the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, and if you follow any of this legal type stuff at all or politics in general, you probably heard about it. The D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals tossed out a case that had been filed by numerous Congress people, representatives and senators, who were seeking a declaration that President Trump is in violation and continues to violate the emoluments clause of the U.S. Constitution. We'll tell you how and why in this podcast. And this is an example of a new case in the news that we cover here at The Law, and we've covered many historically important Supreme Court cases and other levels of cases. And there are many, many important old historical Supreme Court cases that we'll be covering. And the current Supreme Court is hearing arguments now. They'll start putting out decisions in the spring. We already have an eye on several of them, and we'll be covering them as they come out. But right now, they're not putting out any new stuff. And this case is an important contemporary Federal Court of Appeals case that matters today. Very timely. As always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. You can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app and at speakeasyideas.com. You can follow this podcast on social media. On Twitter, that's at TheLawDKW, and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I would love to hear from you. If you would, you can like, review, comment, subscribe, share if you would. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at The Law with DK Williams via a sponsorship. Now, let's do this. So who are the named plaintiffs? Well, the named plaintiff that we all hear about is Richard Blumenthal. He's a Democratic senator out of Connecticut. He's been in the U.S. Senate since 2011, and he is one of 215 members of Congress, representatives and senators, who joined this lawsuit against Trump. And you might guess all of their party affiliation. Since Blumenthal's name was listed first, he's the one that we use to describe the case. Blumenthal versus Trump. Donald J. Trump, only defendant in this case. So you've got the plaintiffs with their lawyers. You've got Donald Trump, the defendant, with his representation. And oftentimes you will have what they call amicus briefs, a friend of the court who wish to brief the case and present arguments that maybe the plaintiffs and the defendants don't mention or don't make. It's unusual to have nine of them, and that's what we have here. And Amici, nine Amici, I think that's how you make it plural, the Amici, the friends of the court, filed nine separate briefs. Now, I have to wonder how much that ninth one really adds to the discussion. How much does the third one, fourth one, but there's nine of them here. They all sound like made-up groups. The Amici, the, these out, groups that aren't the plaintiff, aren't the defendant, who wanted to be heard, however, are named like this. Bipartisan former members of Congress. That's one of the groups that filed a brief. And all the first eight of these are all in favor of the plaintiffs who are arguing that Trump is in violation of the emoluments clause. We have the separation of power scholars. Again, sounds like they got together for this case for that. Another one, scholars of standing, federal jurisdiction, and constitutional law. 
Another, former national security officials, and get this one, certain legal historians in support of the plaintiffs. Here's a separate group, wanted to be heard. Administrative law, constitutional law, and federal court scholars. Okay, if you say so. Another one, former government ethics officers supporting the plaintiffs. This one I've never heard of before, but I think it's a real thing. It exists prior to this lawsuit. It's not a group of professors that got together. And it's the Niskanen Center. I guess that's how you pronounce it. N-I-S-K-A-N-E-N, Niskanen Center. Also in support of the plaintiffs. I've never heard of it, but their website says, The Niskanen Center works to advance an open society by active engagement in the war of ideas, direct engagement in the policymaking process, and through the courts with amicus briefs and pro bono representation. That is certainly a bunch of words. They don't really tell you anything about their goals. They say they want an open society. Thanks for the specificity there. Now, I'm sure the website goes into more details, but that is like on their mission statement, which tells you absolutely nothing about them, which I'm sure that's the way they want it. Of course, they are based out of the District of Columbia. So those eight were all in favor of the plaintiff Congress people. The last Amici was Professor Clark D. Cunningham and Professor Jesse Egbert in support of neither party. That's what it says on the on the opinion. I, I'm not sure what they were arguing, but they were in support of neither party. So this was a unanimous Court of Appeals decision, the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, three to nothing. It's a per curiam opinion, per, you know how to spell that one, then curiam, C-U-R-I-A-M. And that means for the court, literally. So the author of this opinion, we don't know. It's like all three of them are responsible for it. There's not an author and then people join it. It's just all three of us agree to this, in essence. Not an official writer. Two of these judges were Republican appointees and one was a Democrat. Politics really rarely play a role in these federal court appeals. When it does, of course, we hear about it at the Supreme Court specifically. And what do we know about these three D.C. Circuit Court judges? The first one, Karen LaCraft Henderson. And this is a bio from the official D.C. Circuit webpage. Judge Henderson was appointed United States Circuit Judge in July of 1990, so she's been doing this a while. She received her undergraduate degree from Duke University, that's unfortunate, and her law degree from the University of North Carolina, go Tar Heels. In June of 1986, Judge Henderson was appointed United States District Judge for the District of South Carolina, where she served until 90 when she was appointed to the D.C. Circuit. Now, on the official court website, there's no mention of who appointed her to either of these federal court positions, nor for the other two judges. We have to go to that definitive source, Wikipedia, for that information. She is a 75-year-old judge at this point. She was appointed to the district court by Reagan back in 86, and when she went to the Court of Appeals in 90, she was appointed by H.W. Bush. The second of the three judges is David Tatel. I assume that's how you pronounce it. It's T-A-T-E-L. I guess it could be Tatel. I'm going to go with Tatel. From the official court bio, Judge Tatel has served in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit since 1994. Also been doing it a while. He earned his undergraduate degree from the University of Michigan and his JD law degree from the University of Chicago in 1966. He taught law and worked in private practice. So he's 77 years old. So we got some old folks on this thing. He was the, the one appointed by a Democrat. He was appointed by Bill Clinton in 1994. The third judge in this unanimous decision was Thomas B. Griffith. He's the young guy. He's 65. And he was appointed by George W. Bush in 2005. He's a graduate of Brigham Young and the University of Virginia Law School. And he was engaged in private practice among other things, before joining the bench of the D.C. Circuit. And I can guarantee you media would have made a big deal out of this if all three had been Republican appointees. Heaven forbid two of them were Trump appointees, right? They would have 
made all kind of pay about that. But they can't do it here because even the democratically appointed judge by Clinton was part of the decision. Now, this case was dismissed for lack of standing. The federal district court said that the plaintiffs had standing, but the District of Columbia Circuit Court disagreed. Now, these plaintiffs or Congress people could appeal this decision, which dismissed their case, but from what I've read, they probably won't, but if they do appeal or anything else happens to this case, we'll let you know. But there are two other cases, separate from this one, alleging a violation of the Emoluments Clause with different plaintiffs in different courts. So this issue overall of whether or not Trump is violating the Emoluments Clause, basically by having hotels where foreign dignitaries stay, so that's still pending in those cases. We don't know how those will turn out, but we'll keep an eye on it. And the court mentions those other two cases in a footnote, and they are... Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, that's the plaintiff, versus Trump. And those are private parties in the hospitality industry, so other hotel owners, right? They are alleging harm to their business interests because the president's unauthorized receipt of emoluments. That's their argument. And that one is um, in the Second Circuit at the moment. The other one is in the Fourth Circuit. It's just N. Ray Trump and the District of Columbia, the government entity, D.C., and Maryland, the state of Maryland as an entity, allege harm to their sovereign and or quasi-sovereign interests, as well as proprietary and other financial harms. So what you've got here is private hotel owners who say that they have a cause of action, and then there's a state government and the District of Columbia government saying they have a legitimate interest to be pursued. So in this case... A handful, over 200 members of Congress, but not a majority of either House or of the Senate, are saying that they have a cause of action, but the D.C. Circuit says they do not. Now, standing has come up before in several other cases that we've covered, and I usually point out that standing is a very important legal concept that is incredibly boring. I don't talk about it much and get to the merits of whatever case we're going over. This case, however, doesn't get to the merits because they dismiss it on lack of standing. So now's a good time to mention it, at least as it applies in this case. And since the plaintiffs are suing based on a violation of what they perceive or they argue as a violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution, let's look at what it actually says. And it says, this is Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8. No title of nobility shall be granted by the United States, and no person holding any office shall, without the consent of Congress which is important for their lawsuit here. So no person holding any office shall, without the consent of Congress, accept of any present emolument, office, or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state. Emolument is a word that is used basically only in this context because we don't really use that word anymore. But according to the first dictionary definition I found on the internet, emolument means a salary fee or profit from employment or office. So money. So that sets the stage. Now let's go to the words of the court. In this case, 250 members of the Congress sued President Donald J. Trump based on allegations that he has repeatedly violated the United States Constitution's Foreign Emoluments Clause. Then they get into some history. The court says, Trouble that one of the weak sides of republics was their being liable to foreign influence and corruption. The framers prohibited persons holding any office of profit or trust under the United States from accepting from a foreign sovereign any present emolument, etc., etc., without the consent of the Congress. Justice Joseph Story described this clause as founded in a just jealousy of foreign influence of every sort, although he found it doubtful that in a practical sense, 
it can produce much effect because, and I find this very insightful from just a story, and he wrote this in 1833, he said, a patriot will not be likely to be seduced from his duties to his country by the acceptance of any title or present from a foreign power. An intriguing or corrupt agent will not be restrained from guilty machinations in the service of a foreign state by such constitutional restrictions. Seems like a valid point and a practical one. So what do the plaintiffs actually allege? What are they trying to do here? The court says that the the plaintiffs in this case allege that President Trump has a financial interest in vast business holdings around the world that engage in dealings with foreign governments and receive benefits from those governments, and that by virtue of that financial interest, he has accepted, or necessarily will accept, emoluments from foreign states while holding the office of president. They allege the president's failure to seek and obtain congressional consent, remember that part of the clause, has completely nullified the votes they, as members of Congress, are authorized to cast to approve or disapprove his acceptance of foreign emoluments. They say that, as members of Congress, they must have the opportunity to cast a binding vote that gives or withholds their consent before the president accepts any such emolument. So basically they're saying that since Congress has not been asked to approve any of these emoluments that they say the president is getting, the Constitution has been violated. That's their argument. That, of course, assumes he is receiving emoluments, which is a debatable allegation given the context of what the Constitution was talking about. And maybe he is, maybe he's not, but it's debatable. But they have to, the court has to assume that he is, and in that assumption, they will see if the plaintiffs have standing, and the court here says they, they do not have standing. First, the argument goes of the plaintiffs. The clause imposes a procedural requirement. The president must obtain the consent of the Congress. That federal officials, including the president, must satisfy before they take a specific action, accept any emolument from any foreign state. This requirement of a successful prior vote, combined with the right of each senator and representative to participate in that vote, means that every time the president accepts an emolument without first obtaining congressional consent, again, this is their argument, plaintiffs are deprived of their right to vote on whether to consent to its acceptance. So this makes me wonder, would any president who owns stock in a business that participated in any type of commercial transaction with other countries and foreign states have to get permission for every such transaction? I mean, if somebody owns stock in General Motors and France, the government of France, wants to buy a bunch of GM cars, are you going to have to get permission for that? I mean, maybe so. I mean, I don't think that is what Congress is supposed to be doing under the Constitution, but I haven't researched that issue, and my guess is that I don't think that's what it really means. Second, the court goes on, the Foreign Emoluments Clause according to plaintiffs, regulates the private conduct of federal officials. Because President Trump is violating the clause, the argument goes, through his private businesses, without the need for government funds or personnel, Congress cannot use its power of the purse, normally the ultimate weapon of enforcement available to the Congress, to stop him. They go on without that tool or any other effective means of forcing President Trump to conform his personal conduct to the clause's requirements, the plaintiffs, the Congress people suing in this case, have no adequate legislative remedy for the president's denial of their voting rights. So they're trying to couch this in terms of a voting rights case. The Court of Appeal says, as a legal matter, on appeal of a dismissal denial, because Trump moved to dismiss it at the district court, 
which the district court did not because he said the plaintiffs have standing, that denial was appealed. The court of appeal says, we review the district court's legal determinations de novo, which means brand new. We don't have to listen to anything the district court said about the law because we're going to look at that ourselves and assume the truth of the plaintiff's material factual allegations. So they're going to assume he's taking emoluments to decide whether or not they have standing. The court lays out some fundamental principles of judicial review and what the judiciary's role is. They quote another case, No principle is more fundamental to the judiciary's proper role in our system of government than the constitutional limitation of federal court jurisdiction to actual cases or controversies. Standing to sue is a doctrine rooted in the traditional understanding of a case or controversy. They go on. To establish Article Three standing, which is judicial standing, a plaintiff must, as an irreducible constitutional minimum, suffer an injury in fact that is fairly traceable to the challenged conduct of the defendant that is likely to be redressed by a favorable judicial decision. So basically, they, you cannot sue to change something that does not or cannot affect them. You'd have countless suits because someone or some think tank somewhere didn't like a policy, and we have enough of that already. As an easy non-constitutional example, by way of illustration, let's say you're standing on a corner, you see a car run a red light, that car, the driver of that car did something wrong. But you can't sue him just because he did something wrong because it did not hurt you. So if it did not hurt you, you cannot sue. So that's part of the concept of standing. And it goes back to my favorite quotation that I try to throw in as often as I can from Justice John Marshall Harlan II, where he said, The Constitution is not a panacea for every blot upon the public welfare, nor should this court be thought of as a general haven of reform movements. And without this concept of standing, you'd have people trying to achieve judicially things they could not achieve legislatively or at the ballot box. And the court here, the Court of Appeals, says that this is an easy case for them to decide because a 1997 Supreme Court case deals with this issue. And the result is that Congress people in a case like this do not have standing to sue. And that case was Reigns versus Byrd. The Court of Appeals says that Reigns is our starting point when individual members of the Congress seek judicial remedies. In the Reign case, six members of Congress challenged the constitutionality of the Line Item Veto Act. The Reigns plaintiffs, members of Congress, alleged they were harmed because the statute diluted their Article I voting power. The district court found the Reigns plaintiffs had standing, but on direct appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court reversed, holding that they lacked standing. D.C. Circuit says this case is really no different from that one. The members were not singled out. Their alleged injury is shared by the 320 members of Congress who did not join the lawsuit, which is more than those who did. And their claim, the plaintiff's claim, is based entirely on the loss of political power. They say they don't get to vote on whether or not the president can accept this money. Yeah, so this leaves open the question of whether or not Congress, if Congress voted to bring such a lawsuit and it passed both houses, House of Representatives said, yes, we want to sue on this issue. Senate voted on the same thing. So now Congress is speaking as a body. So if Congress did that, would they have standing? Now, the D.C. Circuit here doesn't answer that question because that question is not presented to them. But it seems to indicate in that situation, Congress as a whole would have standing to sue. The D.C. Circuit says, our conclusion to dismiss the case because these members of Congress don't have standing, our conclusion is straightforward because the members, the plaintiffs, 29 senators and 186 members of the House of Representatives do not constitute a majority of either body and are, therefore, powerless to approve or deny the president's acceptance of foreign emoluments. 
so they don't have the voting power to make a difference. Power is not vested in any one individual, but in the aggregate of the members who compose the body. So you need 51 senators to, to speak for the Senate and half plus one of the members of Congress to do that. And they don't have those numbers here. And if they did, they could vote on it. They could pass it through, the, through Congress, but they can't. So they try to go through the judiciary and make the argument that they cannot win. They don't have the votes for in the legislative branch. So the circuit court makes an important point. Political questions are to be decided politically and not judicially. Court says the plaintiffs can, who are all members of Congress, and likely will, continue to use their weighty voices to make their case to the American people, their colleagues in the Congress, and the president himself, all of whom are free to engage that argument as they see fit. But we will not the court. Indeed, we cannot participate in this debate. The Constitution permits the judiciary to speak only in the context of an Article III case or controversy, and this lawsuit presents neither. These arguments that the court is talking about here are political arguments. They are available. And note that the House of Representatives passed articles of impeachment just back in December, right? They didn't bring up the emoluments clause, violation of the emoluments clause, it's hard to say, in those articles of impeachment. They couldn't even get 51% of the votes when they're already doing the articles of impeachment on nebulous things like abuse of power and obstruction of Congress. They have something specific here they could have mentioned, and they chose not to. And the Democrats controlled the House of Representatives, and they did not put this in their articles of impeachment. And they had the absolute political power to do so, but they didn't have the political will or ability or desire to do it. And if they had, that would have been a completely legitimate way to address this purported violation of the Constitution. But they failed at it. So they failed politically, and they shouldn't expect to prevail judicially. The separation of powers, the court is saying here, is a good idea. So this one is pretty straightforward. Individual members are a minority of Congress, does not have standing to sue the president in a case like this. They've got a remedy, and it's legislative, and it is political, and that's what they have to pursue. And in this case, they fail to do that. They fail to accomplish it by political means or legislative means, and the court is not going to allow them to do it judicially. Pretty straightforward this week. If you have any questions, let me know. I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 69, Blumenthal versus Trump, where the D.C. Circuit just this week dismissed members of Congress' complaint that Trump was violating the emoluments clause of the Constitution because they lacked standing to bring the case. We are brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. It's Twitter at TheLawDKW and on Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. I'm available for speaking engagements, consulting, teaching. Contact Bethany at SpeakeasyIdeas.com for details. Until next week, my friends, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.